a very good warming, a very good, sorry, a very good warning to you all, stumbling over my own tongue this morning. Um, on this, the Sunday the 26th of November, um, if you're a visitor with us, as an especially warm welcome, and uh, uh, trust that you will join with us as we sing and praise, pray and hear the Lord's Word preached this morning. Um, uh, we did have a slight debate this morning on whether this is actually the first, day, first Sunday in Advent or not. I'm not going to pronounce judgment on that, but I will say that the Santa specials are running at Kratos, so make what you will of that. Um, our service this morning will be, um, um, will be very much a Christmas theme um, from, um, from the topic of the sermon through the songs that we're singing this morning. And uh, do bear with us, um, but do also fill your lungs and sing praise to God. Um, our, our preacher this morning is our pastor in training, Mark, and he will be continuing uh, the, the Advent series in Matthew that we began last week. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let me add to, to Nigel's welcome. It's great to have you here this morning. Uh, it's my privilege as pastor in training to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, if you want to flick over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we're continuing a short series that Duncan started last Sunday, where we're looking at this, this Christmas story. Um, and whether we're on the first advent of Christmas, or nearly on the first advent, is neither here nor there, but we're starting looking at this, this Christmas story this morning. And let me read the verses that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 1. We're reading from verse 18 to verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me just pray briefly before we look at these words together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read your word, we hear your voice. And Father, that is what we want to hear this morning, not the words of men, but the words of God. And Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to hear what it is you would have us to hear this morning. And we pray that we would not receive mere information, but by your Spirit, Lord, we would be transformed in our inner being. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we, um, as we begin into this Advent series, we're taking a break from this series that we had in Exodus, 
And last week, Duncan opened up the first half of this chapter in Matthew's Gospel, uh, which looks at this royal lineage of Jesus, the son of David. And we saw that God has been at work in all of history, carefully crafting uh, the rise and fall of kings and the eras in which they reigned. And He was molding all of history into a shape that would cry out His absolute control of all things, even things which appear often chaotic and random to bring about the birth of Christ. And Christmas, even now, is a time where we often feel that it can be sometimes chaotic and random. In our running about after various lists and things to do, we often are very aware of our own shortcomings and ability to control things. But praise God, God is not as limited as we are. He is unlimited. And we see the sovereign control of God in the events of history, both big and small, highlighted again in this passage this morning, where we will come to understand that what looked like to all the world, like a a scandalous, adulterous, unplanned pregnancy, was actually anything but. In Matthew 1, 18 to 25, we discover that Mary's pregnancy that would lead to the birth of Christ is a perfectly planned pregnancy. And it's perfectly planned despite the appearances. You know, despite these appearances, we, we discover that everything is just as it needed to be in order for the words of the prophet Isaiah to be fulfilled. When he said, a virgin would give birth to a son, and this son would be God with us, Emmanuel. That's what Matthew wants us to see in verse 22. He says, all the events of this crazy story happened to fulfill what the prophet had foretold. Every little amazing and unexpected detail in this story is here on purpose. So, this is a perfectly planned pregnancy, and the pregnancy happens at just the right moment with just the right man by just the right means in order to deliver just the right kind of Savior. In fact, the only Savior that could really save. So, let's look at these these three things, the right moment, the right man, the right means to bring about this right Savior. The verses that that come just before our passage, the ones that Duncan finished on last week, give an overview of all of salvation history from Abraham to this moment. And what we can clearly see is that this is not random. History is not random. There is a structure and an order that is clearly seen. And what it tells us is that God has been planning this moment for a very long time, for eternity, in fact. And, And Paul in Galatians 4 tells us this quite clearly that this is a planned moment. He tells us that it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born of Mary, at just the right moment. And we see that not, as, not only is this the right moment in a kind of world history perspective, it's actually the right moment for Mary in her specific personal circumstances. Now, that might be surprising to hear at first, but when we think about it, it really is the only moment for Mary to fall pregnant so that the, prophet, the prophecy of Isaiah 7 might be fulfilled, the prophecy that a virgin would bear a son. You know, we see in verse 18, when Mary, Jesus' mother, was betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they'd yet slept together, she was found to be pregnant. Would it not have made things a lot simpler if God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus before she was betrothed? Would it not have been less complicated before Joseph was on the scene? Surely this would have been an easier moment for all this to happen. But, but actually, this is the perfect moment for her to become the virgin mother. And Mary has a man in Joseph that she loves and a man that loves her. They've not yet slept together, but they are very much committed to one another. They were betrothed to one another. Agreements between Mary and Joseph and their families had been made, and they were not made lightly. The act of being betrothed in those really binding. So this was no casual relationship. It was even stronger, much stronger than our modern engagements. By being betrothed to Joseph, Mary has someone who has promised to be her husband, someone who has promised to provide for her and protect her, and someone to vouch for her. And this is crucial. Without this, a virgin who became pregnant would not only be seriously doubted, she would be in great danger. Just imagine what would have happened if Mary had been a virgin but not yet betrothed. For a young virgin to be found pregnant in those days would have been utterly ruinous for her and would have brought devastating shame upon her and her family. Because of course, no one would believe that she was a virgin. The assumption would have been made that she had, had slept with someone outside of a marriage relationship, and she would have been excluded from society and could even have been killed according to the law. It had to be a virgin for the prophecy to be fulfilled, but this was a dangerous situation for Mary unless she has a protector. So this is the right moment, the right circumstance for Mary to become pregnant while she is still a virgin because she is betrothed. While on the surface it might seem inconvenient, it's actually providential that Mary is betrothed, but it's only providential because of who she is betrothed to. This is the right moment because Joseph is the right man for this moment. And Joseph is a remarkable character in this story, and so remarkable, in fact, that while Luke, in his telling of this story, focuses more on Mary, Matthew here puts Joseph front and center. We see that Joseph is the right man, firstly, because of how he responds to the news of Mary's pregnancy. You know, it's incredible to see in this story the love that Joseph has for Mary. On first discovering that she's pregnant, he must have been reeling. He would have naturally thought she'd been unfaithful to him. She'd surely slept with someone. He must have felt broken-hearted, betrayed, angry maybe. And it wouldn't have been surprising if he wanted to exact some kind of revenge on her. Had he been so minded, he could have exposed Mary's apparent adultery. And at Deuteronomy 22, it tells us that if a woman who was betrothed to a man was found to be in an adulterous relationship with another man, they were both liable to the shocking punishment of being stoned to death. Now, this is the law that still stood at the time of Mary and Joseph. But even if Joseph didn't want to employ the full force of the law against Mary, he could have caused her great damage in this, this honor and shame culture that they lived in. He could have publicized that she'd been unfaithful to him, and she would have been ostracized and expelled from society, ridiculed and marginalized, and there would have been deep and enduring shame on her and her family. 
But we see Joseph doesn't choose any of that. Instead, we read, because Joseph was a just man, a righteous man, a good man, and he was unwilling to put Mary to shame, he chose instead to try to keep Mary's supposed indiscretion a secret. He thought it would be best for all involved if he could just divorce her quietly. But how could such a thing really be kept quiet? I mean, in in a small community, everyone knows who's betrothed to whom. And it was legally binding. An actual divorce needed to take place here. But Joseph decided to do this in such a way that Mary would be protected, that shame would not be brought upon her. Well, the only way, the only possible way this could be achieved is if Joseph would allow the community to think the worst of him instead because there was no such thing as a no-fault divorce in those days. Someone was to blame, and if Joseph wouldn't expose Mary's apparent adultery, everyone would assume he was the bad guy. But such was Joseph's love for Mary. He determined to endure the shame for the sake of Mary, even when he thought she had sinned against him. And there is something remarkable here. There's something actually of the character of his adopted son here, choosing ill treatment and shame to shield someone else from shame and scorn. Joseph shielded Mary from shame by bearing it on himself, even though she was in fact innocent. We, we are truly guilty, but Jesus chooses to take our shame on himself so we might be spared. So here we see Joseph, he thinks about ending the relationship with Mary, but, but mercifully, He isn't long in this state of relational agony. It seems soon after his decision, or in fact even while he was still considering what to do and how to do it, the word of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream. An angel showed up to put things straight. Joseph had demonstrated in his response to Mary that he was just the right man for this moment, but now we're going to see even more crucially, he's the right man because of how he responds to God and God's Word. An angel shows up and tells Joseph that he doesn't need to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. She hasn't cheated on him. The baby in her womb is from the Holy Spirit, and this is no ordinary baby. He is to be given the name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. This is a remarkable thing, Joseph is told, and we're going to look at the details of that in a little bit more detail in our last point, but let's just focus in on Joseph's response. Look at his faith. He hears something that is, frankly, incredible, but by faith, he accepts what the angel tells him as God's Word. He believes it is true, and as such, he responds to God in faith. He doesn't divorce Mary, he sticks by her side. He continues, continues faithfully to protect her and the baby in her womb. And no doubt, as Mary's bump grew, people who knew them would do the math and assume the worst of them both. But undeterred by the opinions of the world, Joseph sticks by Mary because he cares more about what God says than what people might think. So when Joseph woke up from the dream, he does exactly what God told him to do. So that, uh, but so that there can be absolutely no doubt that the baby to be born is not biologically his, 
We see at the end of this passage that he didn't sleep with Mary until after the baby was born. And there's one other detail that we need to look at about who Joseph is to recognize that he is just the right man for this moment. Matthew's at pains to tell us that Joseph is not the biological dad of Joseph, but Joseph is just the right man for this prophecy to be fulfilled because we see how the angel addresses him. He is son of David. And you see, as was clear in the genealogy last week, the baby to be born was to be this royal one, this son of David, the long-promised son of David. But for this to be true, his dad would need to be a son of David. In Jewish law, the name is passed by father to the son. For Jesus to be considered in Jewish law to be the true son of David, Joseph, his adopted dad, must be a son of David. And this is exactly who he is. So yet again, we see that Joseph is the right man for this perfectly planned pregnancy. But now let's look at the final and and the most astounding point of this passage. This is a perfectly planned pregnancy, a pregnancy that that the prophet spoke of when he said, a virgin would give birth to a son who would be Emmanuel, God with us. And for this to be true, it must be a supernatural pregnancy. And this pregnancy is just that. It is a perfectly planned pregnancy that occurs by the right means to fulfill the prophet's words and deliver a baby that would deliver his people from their sins. Two times we read, that the miraculous means of this pregnancy was the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit who hovered over the surface of a dark and formless world at the very beginning of time and brought forth life, here is responsible for the new life now in Mary's womb. Mary is very much the mother, but the Father is God Himself. And there is something absolutely mind-blowing going on here, and it is, it's totally beyond our ability to comprehend the mechanics of how this works. But the facts of this amazing story really couldn't be clearer the way that Matthew has written it. Mary, as a virgin, is Jesus' mother. He would have her DNA. He is truly human. Joseph is not the biological dad. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, causes the eternal Son of God to take on human flesh in the womb of Mary. And so, Jesus is also truly God. Jesus, the baby born of a virgin, is truly man, and at the same time, truly God. He's, he is not some sort of a half-man, half-God hybrid. He is not sometimes God and sometimes man. No, at the incarnation and since His very conception, Jesus has always been perfectly, truly man and perfectly, truly God, two distinct natures in one person. We cannot get our heads around this, but the fact of it is essential. Jesus is the child from the Holy Spirit, and it is only by this means of conception through the Holy Spirit that the baby in Mary's womb could be called Emmanuel. It is only by this means that the baby could be truly God and truly man. It is only by this means that the prophecy could be fulfilled where a virgin gives birth to a son 
who is God with us. And it is only by this means that Jesus can live up to his name and come and save his people from their sins. But, but why? Why is this so? Why must Jesus be truly God and truly man in order to save? Well, let's think about what we need to be saved from. The Bible makes it very clear that humanity has a problem. We need to be saved. And the thing we need to be saved from more than any other is not as the world would have us think, climate disaster, our war, our economic meltdown, our social unrest. No, the fundamental thing that we need to be saved from is ourselves, from our own sin. We need to be saved from the deadly consequences of it. And sin, the Bible tells us, is the universal human condition since Adam, the first human, ignored God's good rule and turned instead to disastrous self-rule. He turned his back on the God who gives life, the God he was to relate to as good and wise king. Adam instead chose to live as though God were a liar. He ignored his words, and he put himself on the throne. And this is the state of every person ever since. We have all turned our back on God. This is the essence of sin. And it's something that is an affront and a treacherous rebellion against the only true God who is holy and pure and perfect, infinitely so. To rebel in such a way against such an infinitely good God is an infinitely terrible thing to do, and it comes with grave consequences. Sin leads to separation from the God who made us and gives us life. Sin leads to death. It leads to the just punishment that we all deserve. But we are told Jesus comes to save his people from their sin. And this is wonderful good news. But how is it possible? It's only possible because Jesus is the baby born of a virgin who is God with us. And it's only possible because Jesus is both truly God and truly perfectly man. He must be both or he cannot bring together man and God. He cannot save if he is not truly God and truly man. Let's look first at really why he must be truly God. In the story of Jesus, perhaps you know it in, in the Gospels, Jesus, he goes and he heals and he forgives a paralyzed man, a man who had no ability to walk. His friends carry him to Jesus, and Jesus declares first to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people who were standing witnessing this, the religious elites, were horrified. How could Jesus, a man, claim to forgive sins? Because they knew God alone can forgive sins. Jesus, for him to be able to save his people from their sins, must have authority to forgive sins. He must have that right. And the only person, and only the person that has been offended by an act of violence has the right to forgive the perpetrator. Only the person whose house has been robbed has the right to forgive the robber. Only God, who has been sinned against, has the right to forgive the sinner. 
God alone can forgive sins. Unless Jesus is God, He cannot save me from my sin. And God never does and never has delegated His authority to forgive sin. The wonderful thing we discover in this passage is that God, in sending His Son, has not only the right to save and forgive, but also the will to save. God, and only God, can save people from their sins. So, it is absolutely essential that this baby born of Mary was from the Holy Spirit, that He was God with us, Emmanuel. But for Jesus to come and save His people from their sin, He must not only be God, He must also be man, a man who has the right to take the just punishment for sin upon Himself in the place of His people, a man who could die in the place of sinful man, He must be able to die the death that I deserve for my sin, the death that all of us deserve for our sin. So, Jesus must be truly God, and He must be truly man, or He would not be a suitable sacrifice for sins. And He must be a perfect man. The life of a human, a perfect human, is the only sacrifice that will do. If Jesus were not a man, but an animal, or even an angel, it would not do. The life of a human is the only possible substitute. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the old sacrificial system, which was designed to be deficient, and through its deficiency, point us to the sufficient one, Jesus, he tells us that not all of the blood of bulls and goats that were used in that old system could wash away sin. These sacrifices were not sufficient, but it does say that Jesus, the true man, when He laid down His life for one time, He made the perfect and acceptable, sufficient sacrifice. Because Jesus is truly human, He can stand in my place, and He can take my penalty, and He can be the sufficient sacrifice. We see that Jesus is truly human here in this passage, and we see it in full technicolor in the Gospels where Christ is portrayed. We see that He got tired. He got hungry. He suffered in every way, in every way that we suffer, so that He might sympathize with us in our suffering. And we see that Jesus was also tempted, tempted but crucially without sin. And this is crucial because if Jesus were not a perfect man, His death would not be a just punishment. His his death, rather, would be a just punishment for His own sin. He could not step in for me. The means of Mary's pregnancy was the only possible means that could bring about the delivery of a perfect Savior, the one they call Jesus because He would save His people from their sins, the one who would be a truly human baby, born of His mother, the Virgin Mary, and the one who would be at the very same time truly God with us, Emmanuel. Now, as we look at the the details of this passage, there's perhaps a number of things that are difficult for us to get our heads around. And there's some, frankly, humanly speaking, impossible things. For many, the, the virgin birth seems to be the most hard-to-believe thing. It's impossible that a young Mary who had never yet known a man intimately would become a mother. 
This is impossible. But this is not the most impossible thing in this passage. If it could be measured, the miraculous power exerted by God to make a virgin pregnant would pale in insignificance to the power it would take to save even a single soul from their sins. If you're going to marvel at something in this extraordinary story, marvel at this. This is the greatest miracle ever seen that there has ever been, that God, being utterly perfect and holy and just, would be able to exercise mercy and grace to save me, to make, to forgive me from my rebellion against Him in a way that preserved His perfect justice. He didn't simply overlook sin and sweep it under the carpet. He dealt with it perfectly. God was able to save me from my sins because of the miracle that caused the eternal Son of God to be clothed in human flesh, truly God and truly man, so that He could exercise perfect judgment by punishing His own Son. God, thereby taking the penalty of sin on Himself and setting me free, forgiving me and saving me. This is a miracle beyond measure, and it was made possible here with this perfectly planned pregnancy that happened at just the right moment, with just the right man, by just the right means, so that this wonderful Savior could be delivered to us. I wonder if you have experienced the wonder of this Christmas miracle for yourself. Have you known the gift of forgiveness for your own sin? This is what is made possible for us all because of the baby born of a virgin whose name is Jesus, and He comes to save you from your sin. I pray that you will embrace this wonderful truth and embrace Jesus and all that He offers you today, and perhaps even for the first time. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.